0: This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, although ordinarily this is a podcast about all sorts of topics under the sun that relate to wealth and how it intersects with the law. In this month of July 2022, we're focusing on basic estate planning. This is the estate planning boot camp series, so welcome if that's what you were intending to find, and if not, welcome anyways, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Wealth and Love Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and we are continuing our uh, series on basic estate planning, your estate planning boot camp. And today, our topic is revocable trusts, or sometimes these things are called living trusts. doesn't really matter. Their main feature is that they're revocable and they can be amended. And to help me to describe them and uh, hopefully be helpful on this topic uh, from my perspective, not hers, is uh, Deborah Plum. So, Deborah, thanks for joining me.
1: Well, good morning. Hopefully, I will be helpful from both perspectives.
0: You certainly, me, questionable. So the topic of revocable trusts is one where you Google it and there's like a thousand things, and it's basically all people who are really trying to just sell you revocable trust. Um, so I thought maybe we could try to tear through a little bit of the marketing and really drill down into what these things are so people understand what they are and how they function.
1: I like it. It's a good idea. I actually I recently was Googling this on behalf of a client just to see what they were seeing. So it's very timely in terms of subject matter for me, because yeah. they were definitely confused as to what they were. And I can understand why. Well, and you
0: hear things, uh, you know, you hear some people will say, oh, everybody needs a trust. And some people will say almost nobody needs a trust. Um, and, you know, maybe it's difficult to understand which is which. But I think once people understand how they function, then it, it puts it in proper context. Uh, so you can make that determination better. So the big, I guess, the big over, overarching question is, what are they? So can you at least describe what they are so people can understand that as an sure. in, an initial issue?
1: Sure. Uh, well, so revocable trust specifically, or living trusts, as you said, I like to think of them as an alter ego. I know that that's kind of a very philosophical way of starting out a very technical conversation, mm-hmm. but ultimately, you know, I think the big thing that I try to tell people about these trusts is that they are a vehicle. Through which you can own assets without relinquishing control over them and without really giving them away. Cause I think people hear trusts and they think, Oh, this is something where I'm giving my assets away and then the ability to control them. And I think that can be true in a, in different cases, different trusts, not for this podcast. But when I come, when it comes to revocable trust, the key is that they, I just like to explain them as, as a vessel or a vehicle and they're used in a way to sort of. I almost think of it as organization. You gather everything together in one place. It's owned under the name of the trust, and for most, mostly, it also helps with your afterlife preparation, right? So, so yes, it's useful to own things in a trust when you're alive, and we can delve into that a little bit if you want. But I think one of the big selling points, at least for for my clients, is to to explain to them that this is a great way to make sure that after you pass. All of your assets are easily uh, located and also easily distributed without too much court involvement, which of course is the big one in terms of avoiding. And I'll put that in quotes, probate, because I think that that can't that isn't always 100% the case, but is definitely a goal, uh, and it does depend on your state. Um, but so that's that's the what I, I, I wanted to stay broad. So hopefully that was what you envisioned before delving into the details.
0: Yeah, and that. It your I like that analogy of it's an alter ego. I try to describe it to people sometimes by saying if you think of your trust, it is you. And I think you and I are saying the same thing, right? Like <laughs> yeah. it literally yeah. is you. Yeah. And for sure, there's a there's an interesting twist on that which you mentioned, um, which is that it is you, but then in the eyes of the law, if uh, you know, say you became incapacitated, but not deceased or you died in the eyes of the law. It's not you in the right ways. Right. Um, so can you explain that? Like what are the different roles and how are, how can those roles kind of be broken up over time? And so that. The thing that looks like it is you is not always you in the eyes of the law. I know that's confusing.
1: No, it's fine. Right. So if you create a trust, you're typically under the instrument of document, you're called the grantor, or you can also be called a testator. Some people call it a settlor. There's lots of names for this, but effectively, you are the donor in, in other contexts, but you are the person that owns the assets and is designed to give those assets into a trust, of which while you are alive, typically you're also the trustee. So you're the beneficial owner and you're the legal owner, which of course is the usually the way that we divide things when it comes to trust about ownership, right? So the trustee is legally required to act on behalf of the trust or on behalf of of you and follow under a fiduciary obligation, what it is that the trust says and what to do with those assets at different stages. And when you're alive, that's you. So you've given all of your assets into a trust of which you are now also the trustee. So you act in capacity as both. Um, And I think that as, as both the, the sort of owner and the one that wrote this out and expressed their wishes. And then as the trustee who acts on behalf of those wishes and on behalf of the trust. And at that time, It's fully revocable, as you mentioned. So this is something you can constantly change. You know, when people say that they're putting their house in a trust or they're putting assets in a trust, you know, you can change that at any time. This is, you could unwind the trust. You could cancel the whole thing. You could change your mind at any point. And I think that flexibility is something that I try to highlight with clients that it's a really good vehicle for as long as you want to use it while you're alive. And then the benefit is that when you pass or if you become incapacitated, the document is set up so that at that time, when you, certainly when you pass or no longer able to control it, it's effectively irrevocable. That's, that's when you, you no longer have control, which you wouldn't have anyway. And the trustee who would be the successor trustee, whoever you appointed is then responsible for doing what you have said in the trust instrument with your assets. So if that's selling them, if that's holding them in another trust for your children or grandchildren or spouse, if that's, just giving them away to charities whatever it is that you've said you want done your trustee then has to do as a fiduciary and the great thing is you could have changed that, as I said, up until the last minute. So you can decide today that this is what you want to do with your house when you pass. But then in 10 years, you amend the trust. And just like that, the rules have changed about what the, the trustee has to do. And then guess the third role that relates to the trust are beneficiaries. So the time that you're alive, you, it could also be your spouse, depending on how the trust is set up. If it's a joint trust, are the grantors or creator of it, the trustee in charge of keeping things going but although when you're alive that's not really that much to do and the beneficiary and then upon your death the beneficiaries that you've named come in so that's relatives kids charities whoever it is that you choose yeah
0: and i think for some people they'll you know they might be hearing that saying oh man i've got to do i've got to do the job of three people i used to have the job of one person i do this trust and now i've got the job of three people that's not really the way it works and in fact um, it all happens simultaneously, so you don't have to split yourself into three uh, three people or do the work of three. That's not the way it works. It, really, the big distinction once you create the trust is that, you know, if you're going to break it down to sort of like the basic, basic, is like your checkbook at the very top left corner, instead of saying your name, it'll say the name of the trust. It'll say your name, trustee. And the, everything else on that check, when you're filling it out, if this is something that you still do... You do it identically to the way that you were doing it before. You sign your normal name. You write in the numbers normally. Everything else is normal. The only thing that changes is right up in that top left-hand corner of the trust or of the the checkbook to indicate that there is a trust. There's a, a fun little twist on what you were describing, though, with the trustees, I think, and that is that the change in trustees, unlike, say, the executor in your will or in some places the personal representative in your will, because what you're describing in, in, in the trust, like, it sounds like a will. Like, you can rewrite a will whenever you want. Uh, you know, when you die, it says who gets your property, just like the trust, like you're describing. It's like a will that exists while you're alive. But the magic of this, these, uh, trustee provisions is that once there's a change in the trustee, it happens automatically and you don't have to have have permission from a court to make it happen, like you have to have permission from a court often to appoint an executor or to appoint the personal representative after you die. And so it keeps everything private and kind of under one umbrella, like you were describing, like it's this management control. Um, It does that for financial matters. And I think that's the other thing for people to understand about what a revocable trust is and does is that it is for finances. It will not fix family issues. It will not make you a better person. It's just finances. That's it.
1: I like that caveat because it is true. It's not that we're guaranteeing that a revocable trust will avoid messiness of beneficiaries fighting or um, what happens after you pass because it's always messy in, in some level. But I think that that privacy level is is key for a lot of people. You don't, it's not a public document. The trust is yours and yours alone or your family's. And to your point, it not only is that the trustee changes automatically happen, but you don't have to go to each, you know, for each distribution of an asset, it's not a court process or and each, your bank already knows that it's owned in the name of the trust. So the trustee has the power to do what they're told to do with it. You may have to provide them proof of the fact that you're a trustee, you will have to provide them proof of that if you're taking over that role. But ultimately, it's not like arguing with a bank after somebody, well, it shouldn't be um, about, you know, the fact that the personal representative has the right to now distribute money um, as, as described in a will. So I think that Generally speaking, it creates a smoother process for the people left behind as far as, as you said, the financial matters, because just of the way the, the oversight is not the same when it comes to a trust as opposed to, to a will. And I think also, you know, when you talked about the, the roles, that's that's definitely something that, you know, clients ask all the time. Oh, do I need an EIN? Does the trust pay taxes? Is this a whole nother vehicle that I have to monitor and babysit and write out things? And, and the answer to that, as you're living, is no, as you pointed out. I mean, this is just, it's a retitling of what you own. You use your own EIN. There's no difference in your tax filings. It's in in the sense of it's not its own vehicle that has to file taxes when you're alive. So I think that's also something that people can rest easy about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um in another strange twist on things w- while you're alive, the trust doesn't exist for uh, federal tax purposes, right. um, but it, you know, it sort of like doesn't exist for some reasons and it exists for the right reasons. Like uh, a single member right, LLC. Yeah, kind of like that. So it's like, um I think where trusts do really well during lifetime, then I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like why they work well, say after you die, is that they, again, We're talking about your finances. So they allow the trustee who basically has the check writing authority to manage your finances at any moment that you are not able to be the trustee. And the person that will be the trustee after you is literally the person that you put on the list. So you're selecting this person and they step into your shoes and they're your trustee and then they can handle your finances. And all of that happens privately. You don't have to go to to a court and ask the court for permission. And that's the key consideration during your lifetime. The alternative oftentimes is that you do have to go to a court on some level or wherever it is that you live. and you have to ask the court or somebody on your behalf has to ask the court to appoint someone to have authority to manage your finances for you. Sometimes it's called the guardianship of the estate. In some places, it's called the conservatorship. But that process, that court process is quite painful. So avoiding that is very good and very efficient. And it does save you money in the long term. And the likelihood of people needing those sorts of proceedings, uh, absent doing some planning, like having a trust and putting their assets in it is actually quite high because people live for a long time. And so the likelihood of them becoming incapacitated is very high.
1: So I think everything after you pass is sort of an extension of what you just described mm-hmm. in a situation that can also be equally as if not more stressful for the people who are left behind. If you think about how many different types Types of assets people can own, especially now with the digital world, with different uh, different types of um, monetary structures. Although I know Bitcoin's having a bad day, um, or crypto generally, but you know all these different types of assets and where they are can be very challenging to think about even while you own them, let alone being the person left behind to find them. So to the extent that that's cleaned up and organized and everything is owned by a trust, I think that in itself is a a level of relief that's offered to people that you leave behind, which I also I talk about a lot with clients, you know, it's hard enough to handle the death of someone that's going to be hard. No one's that's not, this is not going to take that away. And it's also hard enough to have to go through somebody else's things to backtrack and figure out where they might have left instructions or where things might be owned, which a will may have all the instructions in the world, but everything is in different places and owned in different names or different structures. And they're left to sort of clean that up, so to speak. But the trust, it's it should be much clearer. And even in states like New York, you know, or cities, I should say, where sometimes the assets that are most valuable, your apartment, you know, real estate can't be put into that trust. Everything else can. You know, so sometimes when I hear New Yorkers saying, well, what's the point? You know, I can't put my real estate in a trust. So why bother putting up a revocable trust? It's like, well, everything else can, you know, just because this one item will have to go through the pains of the probate process doesn't mean that it doesn't make it easier to have this set up in advance. So I think that's, that's the first thing. And then I think also it, it's just like you said, the oversight for anyone. If somebody can't be a trustee, something changes in someone's lives. I mean, you have this roadmap, so to speak, set out for the people that are left to, to handle all these complicated issues. And I think, I think that's the biggest one. You know, people talk also about privacy, wills are public documents. I think people don't like the, that idea so much. Um, but, but even if and that can be true, whether or not you're, whatever you're, estate value is. But I do think the most appealing part is just that roadmap that's set up and the lack of need to go back and check in with the court for every decision um, when you're already dealing with a stressful situation. And I will say that if anything is emphasized that COVID certainly has, because – the clients that did have to deal with probate during COVID and with shutdowns, I think, are still sort of having to deal with the, the ramifications on some level. So,
0: yeah, and I think that's a really good summation that they, the, the trust consolidates everything under one name, under one umbrella, and that it does provide that roadmap. And the roadmap can look very similar to what someone would ordinarily think of as being in their will, you know this goes to this person, this goes to that person, the rest of it gets split between these other people. You know, this is, you know, how you want your property to pass. Like you imagine some movie where the lawyer's like reading the will to the family, which I've never experienced in my whole career, but that, (laughs) that, I'm not sure how I missed out on that, but, um, seems fun. (laughs) Um, fun, Yeah. I wish
1: I could do that. Dramatic reading.
0: Yes, dramatic very dramatic readings. Um, but you know, the trust can, contains terms like that in it. So when people are if they're trying to conceptualize, you know, what's the difference between a trust and a will, I don't even know if that's really the right question because they have similar functions in that respect. The the trust just has this added benefit of consolidating the ownership under one name. So you don't have joint accounts here and, you know, a single account there and then something else hanging out here. So consolidating everything under one name, like you were saying, and then providing that level of private financial control over those assets while you're alive, like I was trying to describe, and then after you die, like you're, you were describing. And yeah, I think if people wrap their minds around that, they'll have a pretty good idea of what is at its core a revocable trust and why do they exist? Why do people even use them? Uh, any, any parting ideas before we well, leave people to this?
1: As you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, what are the, I always try and be fair, balanced, you know, what are the cons, Mm -hmm. right? You know, what are the cons of a trust? And I mean, I try, I try to think of them and I could say that, okay, you know, if you really have very few assets and, and you just feel like you don't want to deal with a trust, but then I think why there's, it's not that different from a will. So I I struggle to find cons. I mean, I think if there was some state that I, you know, don't know the rules about whether or not, if 90% of your assets couldn't be held in a trust, And I don't even think that hypothetical exists, but someone could tell me I could understand saying, look, it doesn't it doesn't help. It doesn't avoid that much. So what's the point about putting 10 percent of my estate in a trust? And then so that could be the only time that I would say, "Okay, you know, maybe it's it's just not worth the extra effort or the extra billable hours. Although I, I struggle to also say that the billable hours are different in drafting a trust versus a will. But the other but another benefit that keeps popping into my brain is that for community property states or any couple that owns things jointly, that joint trust just makes it so much easier on the surviving spouse, you know, in a way that that wills don't and or at least don't seem to have the availability to do. Um, So you really do have this vehicle where, you know, spouse dies, the other spouse already has everything. It's all organized. Everything is in this trust as a joint unit. And so I think that's another just Benefit. I'm, I don't know if you have any negatives that you might be able to think of, but I was curious.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of there is a uh, there's a little bit of an annoyance factor because when you initially create your revocable trust, or living trust, you do need to put assets into the trust. So that means deeding real estate. It means opening new bank accounts sometimes or new brokerage accounts and moving property from accounts in your name into accounts in your name as trustee. And you do have to go through on an item by item basis to get everything consolidated under this trust umbrella. And that can be an annoyance, but it is an annoyance that's Worth doing because the trust functions when it owns the property, and that's the way you make it own the property. I mean, the other downside might be, oftentimes when these sorts of things are being priced out, if you get a trust, that's the more expensive option. Um, to your point, if you had a will that had many bells and whistles, adding a trust in probably doesn't make a big difference from a, a cost perspective. But for somebody who's really sensitive to cost, the trust is oftentimes more expensive than just doing the will. And I think that's the way people go. But getting the added benefit of keeping things private, having everything tied under one umbrella, not having to go through one of these two court proceedings we were talking about, it's kind of worth the extra money. There is value to it. It's it's being priced because there's value. It's not priced because people are totally greedy, um, although, of course, sometimes People are motivated by, professionals are motivated by money, but it's really being priced based on the value that's being added because of that document and because of that structure. So I'd say, yeah, those those would be my two cons. One, the annoyance factor of getting everything into the trust, and two, it often does cost a little bit more than if you were just going to do a will.
1: Yeah, agreed. I would love someone to do a spreadsheet and show how much those uh, cost factors even out at the end, as opposed to the cost of estate probate and the annoyance on mm-hmm. that other side of things. So, but I'll leave it yeah. to some marketing person. Yeah.
0: Well, I and mean, for anybody listening, it, it does, de- it does depend on where you live too. Right. Uh, in some places, probate's more expensive than others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Check your local jurisdiction, uh, so to speak is, is the take there. But I'd say overall in most places, trusts do add significant or revocable trusts do add significant benefit. Uh, that, and it has nothing to do with anything other than just managing your finances, like we were describing. Well, Deborah, I really appreciate it. Um, as always, thank you so much for joining me and helping me on this topic.
1: Thanks for having me. This is fun.
0: Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at Wealth and Law. I'll see you there.